certainly going to reach Ezra today, and I hope it's an encouragement. What are you worried about today? What concerns did you walk in here with? What anxieties dominate your thinking and grip you and scare you and keep you up at night? Let's think about the two types of categories where worry falls. Okay, what, what are the two? There's two major categories of worries that we have. I would say first we worry about what is happening. We worry about what is happening, and we can put those into two different categories. We can put those worries into what we call maybe earthly worries and then eternal worries. Earthly worries could be classified as things like uh, aches and pains that we might have and we think we're starting to develop some serious problem or the job we don't have or the bills we can't pay or even the toppling of our own society. But eternal worries would carry a much greater weight, of course. Some of you are married to lost spouses or have wayward children or have concerns about the well-being and discipleship of your own children or grandchildren like Will they continue in spiritual maturity? Will they embrace the faith that I care about? And even to a greater degree, the, the spiritual worries we have about our own church, the vitality and, and uh, sustaining of this ministry, or even the, the morality of our society as a whole, I would think all those are earthly concerns. In fact, I've heard a lot of people say in recent weeks, well, the Lord has got to be coming back soon. But I don't know why we think that. Uh, it, it may be. It may not be. I think Christians throughout history who have had it much rougher than American Christians in the last 150 years or so probably thought that Christ was close when they were on the other end, end of a sword or a guillotine or a noose. Scripture tells us that trials will constantly, enter, constantly be entering our lives and that things will wax worse and worse. Usually these trials are brought to test our faith. 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us that trials enter our life to prove the genuineness of our own conversion so that when you go through trials and you come out on the other side still embracing your faith, you can be grateful that God has shown you that your faith is genuine. And then in James chapter 1, it tells us that trials come into our life to develop some aspect of Christian character that we're lacking. There's some... There's some uh, attribute or, or, or trait that you don't have that, that God is going to use a trial to bring about. So we worry about what is happening, and then really foolishly we worry about what might happen. That would be the second category of things. We, we might even call these like what-if worries. Isn't it bad enough that we worry about things that are going on, but then our minds are also dominated by things that may never even come about? Like, when is the messenger going to come to my house and give me the Job-like bomb that something terrible has happened to me or to my children. Just yesterday, Allie texted us and said a high school graduate from the Christian school there drowned in Guam. So immediately I was like, don't go swimming. Don't jump off cliffs. And these are what-if worries. And so it can dominate my thinking, something that may never even happen. Matthew 6.34 speaks to this, says... Don't be anxious about anything. For t or don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. I jumped the gun a little bit there. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, every day has enough to worry about on its own to be so foolish that we're going to worry about what might happen in the future. So what does the Bible give as instruction or counsel for people who are worried? I already showed the verses here. 
If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably sang the little chorus, Why Worry When You Can... Did anybody sing that song? Sharon, you said it. Pray. Why worry when you can pray? And a couple of passages come to mind with this counsel. <coughs> Here they are. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, should say, and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's Philippians 4, 6. And then 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. <clears throat> the solution for worry and the advice for anxious people is to pray. But this is only comforting if we know who is answering our prayers and our cares. When you have a problem, a temporal problem in this life, and you need to call someone, you want to be sure that the person on the other end is qualified to solve your situation, right? If I have a mechanical problem with the church bus, like we did yesterday, if I have a roof that needs to be replaced, or if I have a medical issue that I'm concerned about, I'm going to call the right person for those solutions. And when you find a person in those categories that you can trust, it's very comforting because the next time you have a problem with your car or with your home or with your body, you know who to call and you have confidence in that person. So what we need to remember is, well, when we are worried, who is the person that is answering our prayers and cares it is God. We started this whole discussion of Ezra with this quote from A.W. Tozer that said, the most important thing about us is what enters our minds when we think about God. So it's important that we think rightly about God. So the thing I want to think about today is two specific aspects of the character of God that we see in the story of Ezra that should bring comfort to us when we're concerned and worried. Let's say it this way. These are, these are the two categories we're going to look at. That God is a promise-keeping God and that he is sovereign. But this is the way I want to say it so it's easier for me to remember. So this is our outline for today. Number one, God does what he says. That would mean he's a promise-keeping God. And second, God does what he wants. That means he is sovereign or in control of all things. So these two thoughts about God, and we think rightly about him, should help to alleviate our concerns and our worries. We think, okay, God, is, God will do what he says, and then God does what he wants. It's no accident that we've been led to the study of Ezra in, in the, in the uh, context of what's going on in our nation and the things we see uh, on the news. So I'm hoping that what we learn about God here today is going to bear fruits of trust and peace in your life. Before we do that, let's do our historical, uh, our historical prelude just to remind you of where we are. If you've been with us every week, this is familiar. Um, we started in before 605 B.C. when God began uh, his promise of judgment on the nation of Judah for their rebellion. And we looked at all these different prophecies, but the key I want you to look at today is something I've added, those two pinkish-purplish dots on the timeline from 605 to 539, that would be classified as the time of exile for the people of Judah. And Jeremiah was giving prophecies during all this time, but the first wave began in 605, and then last week we discussed as Zedekiah watched his sons being slaughtered before his eyes were gouged out by the soldiers of Nebuchadnezzar, that the judgment of God finally and fully and fatally rained down on the nation. 
During this time, Jeremiah was prophesying, and we're not going to go over all those things again, but just let's review how they can be grouped into three main sections, okay? This is basically what Jeremiah was talking about. His first main category of prophecies were repent, repent. Remember, even before God used Babylon to come in, he was saying that it might be, remember that phrase in Jeremiah, it might be that if you repent, God will turn from the judgment that he promised to bring you. So repent, repent, repent. Did they repent? Maybe you should, I, I can't hear. Yeah. They did not. They did not. They continued to refuse to listen to what Jeremiah said. So the second category, category of prophecy was judgment. So because you did not repent, God is going to judge you. He's going to use the nations of the north, the Bible says, to come in and conquer you. But the third category is restoration. That God promises not to abandon you in exile, but will restore you to this land. Now, the, the mountaintop prophecy of that, okay, the, the, the height of that third category of restoration is this, that God would not only bring the people to their land, but would ultimately send them a pure and perfect king, the Messiah, to be their leader who would finally listen to God and reign. That, we're still waiting on that. We're still waiting for that millennial kingdom, but God has promised that. And remember, it was the branch that would grow out of the stump of Jesse. In 2 Chronicles 36, you're looking at it, right? 2 Chronicles 36, it gives us a complete overview of those last four ungodly kings. From Jehoahaz in verse 1, the son of Josiah, to Jehoiakim, to Jehoiachin, to Zedekiah. I just want you to glance at some of those verses. It's just telling you all that we've already talked about over the last three weeks and how finally God brought to them that full judgment. Look at verse number 15 of Second Chronicles 36. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, and it was primarily Jeremiah, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. You tell me if verse 16 doesn't describe the United States. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. And in 586, that final destination happened. The temple was burned. All the important homes in the city were burned. The walls were broken down. The king was... uh, King's sons were slaughtered, and he was taken into captivity, and the only people that were left in Judah were the poorest of the land. Now in this, at the end of the passage, we come to a 70-year break. Look at verse number 21. All this was to fulfill what the Lord had said by the mouth of Jeremiah. Uh, All the days that it lay desolate was 70 years. Now verse 22. Now, if you, actually, if you look and then you turn the page to Ezra, chapter 1, the verses are exactly the same. See that? The end of 2 Chronicles 22, 36, 22, is the exact same as Ezra 1, verse 1. It, and so we can kind of look at that and we'll read them both, but you, you'll see that this is what's happening here. The Lord is kind of explaining. But in between verses 21 and 22, there's a gap of that 70 years. There's a huge gap there. So in the first year, verse 22, of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is 36.22, or you could be reading Ezra 1, just about. The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
So he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Turn the page to Ezra chapter 1. That's how Ezra 1 begins. So let's begin. Let's start with God does what he says and then God does what he wants. These are the comforting things. Now, we want to think about scriptures that teach us that God keeps his promises. He would, here would be two main ones that are worth remembering. Titus 1 verse 3 says, In the hope of eternal life, God has promised eternal life, and God never lies. God never lies. But even more, maybe, to the point about him keeping his promises is Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? What God says, he what? He does. What God says, he does. Look at some of these other promises. Scriptures are constantly highlighting these truths. At the end of the the conquest of Canaan, God said to Joshua, or God said through Joshua, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. We've looked at this one in Lamentations 2.17. When God had promised the judgment on the people, then Jeremiah prays this prayer of lament in Lamentations 2 and says, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word. The New Testament tells us that God makes promises to believers and he keeps his word there. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and 24. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's going to bring you to perfection until Jesus comes? Who's going to carry you across the finish line of your Christian life? 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, He who has called you is faithful. He will surely do it. What God has said, he will. Trying to keep you involved here. Yeah, he's going to do it. All the promises to believers are made and fulfilled through Jesus Christ. That's the only way they're possible. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that. That all of the promises to God in Christ are yes. So the promises that God makes of peace and joy and life and a home in heaven and salvation and forgiveness and hope are realized and only realized in a relationship with Jesus Christ. This morning, Derek read Psalm 144, and the last verse of that psalm says, uh, Blessed are the people on whom these blessings fall. Blessed or happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Everything that God promises, He promises through Jesus Christ. So the person that is not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, are you following this? Misses out on what? If all of God's promises are through Jesus Christ, the person who's not connected to Jesus Christ misses out on the promises, which I just listed. Peace, joy, heaven, forgiveness, salvation, reconciliation, justification. If you are apart from Jesus Christ, you don't get or have any of that. So I don't want to let this moment pass without encouraging you, if you're here today without Christ, to finally turn to him in faith. I would ask you, what is it that's holding you back? It's like, 
We said this Wednesday night, like the guy who's drowning in the ocean. Here's a life preserver. No, thank you. I'm good. And the person who says, in my position, is saying, would you like peace and the hope of heaven and eternal life and joy and fulfillment and purpose and salvation? No, not really. That's like that foolish person in Isaiah 44 who chooses to worship something that he can make. So the urgent need for you today is to repent, which just means to turn from your sin, to admit to God that you've done wrong. And I've said this week after week after week, and some of you, whether children or teens or now adults, have heard this over and over. I would just encourage you by faith to receive Christ and then become an inheritor of all the promises. I bet you everyone in here who is a Christian would urge you to do the same thing. Would say, turn to Christ. Because I'm enjoying some of these promises, and you can as well. God promises to receive you. It's a warning, though, because at any moment, any number of things could happen in your body or outside of your control that could bring your life to a close, and apart from Christ, you enter then a godless eternity separated from all that is good and punished and tortured for your sins forevermore. No chance of ever getting out. I would just urge you, if you are even uh, questioning this or just not understanding it, there's many, many people here. Derek, Tony, would love to speak to you afterwards. Ladies, we could connect you with someone if you're a teen girl and you need to talk to somebody. I would say, especially to our teens, that it's important for you to learn to embrace faith on your own instead of just saying, well, my parents believe this and that's not really for me. Anyway, my urgent warning to you would be saved. Be saved. What are you waiting for? Be saved today. Now, in Ezra chapter 1, to go back to what we're talking about, God specifically keeping his word, we have it specifically stated over and over in all the scriptures that he will do that, and here we have it again in Ezra chapter 1. The, the events that are happening in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus becoming king, the people being released out of their exile after 70 years of captivity, all of that is happening so that, here's the reason behind it all, so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be fulfilled. This is the great news of history, that God has acted, God is acting, and God will act. Let's talk about two different words real quick. Let's talk about the transcendence of God, and then the imminence of God. When we say God is transcendent, that means that he is far above his creation, that he is, he is totally removed from it and separated from it. God is a self-existent being. He does not need anything to maintain his existence. He is far above all that he has made. Derek also in Psalm 144, it also sounded very similar to Psalm 8. What is man that you would have regard for him? Right? He is so far above, but that, doesn't not, that does not mean he is not imminent meaning he is close to. So transcendent would mean far above. Imminent means close to. God has not, as many of our founding fathers believed, set the world in motion and stepped back to see what would happen. God is intimately involved to the point that he knows when sparrows die. Yesterday, Max was cutting the grass and he was attacked by all these birds, swallows, dive-bombing him. When those swallows bite the dust... I would say God not only knows it, God did it. 
Those birds are dependent upon God for their food and breath and water. And in, in the Gospels, we're told that he cares about those birds. Max didn't, but he does. And that he cares and knows our, our numbers of hairs on our head. If he knows the intimate details of our life and of nature like that, certainly then he knows and is in control of the greater things. God is not only the author of the story, he is the main character. And he's working to bring about his purposes. And he's doing it back then in Ezra chapter 1 through the mouth of Jeremiah. Now, what is it specifically saying? You look at Ezra 1 again. It says he's doing these things to fulfill what he said by the mouth of Jeremiah. So what specifically is he talking about? Now, instead of just putting the verses on the screen, I want to walk through them. All these are references in Jeremiah. Let's start in the 16. Let's go to Jeremiah 16. Put a finger or a paper uh, something in, in uh, Ezra, and go ahead in your Bibles. Jeremiah is ahead to verse or chapter 16. I want to show you these five places because Ezra doesn't specifically say which of the words was fulfilled, but he's specifically talking about the word which said, you're going to go away to Babylon for a while, and then I'm going to bring you back. That's what God said. So let's see where he said it. We'll just walk through these real quickly. Jeremiah 16 Verse 14, what is it? Verse 14 and 15. Okay? Because I want you to see it. What I want you to see is, is not just information, but when I started talking about worries and concerns and things that we're freaked out about, is that, is that when we see that God has said something and then does it, he's still the same God today. He's still saying things and doing things, and he can be trusted. He can be trusted. So 16:14 says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, ah, or as the Lord lives, who brought up the people out of, of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. See what's changed? He's saying, right now, everybody says, oh, as the Lord who brought the people out of Egypt. That's what they say. But there's coming a day when they're going to stop saying that, and instead, they're going to say, oh, remember the Lord who brought us out of the north country. It's like they're equating this to a second exodus. The people going from Egypt to the promised land, God says, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to bring them from Babylon to the promised land. The, the point is, I look at verse number 15 one more time. I will bring them back. In Ezra 1, he does it. Look at the next one. Jeremiah 24, just a couple chapters ahead. 24.6. I want you to see it. Okay, 24.6. This is in the parable of the figs. Remember we talked about this, the good figs and the bad figs. 24.6, I will set my eyes on them. He's talking about the people who have gone into exile. I'm going to keep my eyes on them, he says, for good. And I, look at it, I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up. I will not tear them down, etc., etc. I will bring them back. 25.11, might even be on the same page for you. This whole land will become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years, exactly the period of time we saw in 2 Chronicles 36. Look ahead to chapter 30. Two more. Two more. 30 verse 3. Let's see here. 33. 30 verse 3. Behold, the days are coming, coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back 
to the land. And last one is 32 and 37, where it says they will dwell in safety. 32 verse 37. Uh, is that the right verse? Maybe it's not. Yes, it is. Behold, uh, it is given to the hand. They, verse 36 tells us they will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them, and I will at the very end bring them back to this place. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. You don't have to turn there, but if you're close, you can. Remember, it's one of the most misapplied passages in all the Bible. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not for your evil, but for your welfare. And we write it on graduation cards to people who just graduated. Said, oh, God has great plans for you. Or, you know, people are getting married or whatever. This is a great verse to use. That's not what it's talking about. Now, God, has, does, God does have good plans for us, but this verse is specifically talking about the plans that he had for the nation. He's going to bring them back. There's coming a day still for Israel when they will live under the righteous branch. Now, there's one thing that's even stronger for us to note here about God keeping his word, and that's this. Turn to, turn to Isaiah 44, the passage we read earlier. I read the whole chapter for us because it's very important. God is going to make an argument in Isaiah 44 that he alone is the true God. I want you to track with me for about three minutes here because it's, it's going to make an important point in just a second. God is making an important point about that he, he alone is God. Verse number 6. Let's just review some of the, some of the uh, terms we looked at. Verse number 6. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then in verse 8, is there any God? I don't know any. In verse 9 to 11 and the rest of that passage, again, we already read it, so you're just glancing at it yourself right now. It's about how the foolishness of people who cook over part of their idol. <laughs> right? I, I made this, but I'm going to use this part to worship. Verse 12 to 17, how foolish it is to pray and worship a God that we make. Now, the, the, the interesting part about God keeping his word is that there's, there's really three parts of it, okay? He, he promises, right? He says, I'm going to do something. So he promises. But he also predicts. You know, and that's very, very specific. Okay, so he says, I'm going to do something. But he's not very general about it. He predicts it very, very specifically. And then he purposes it. Then he, then he brings it to pass. So here, here's the process. God says, I'm going to do this. And here's exactly how I'm going to do it with very specific details. And then I'm going to purpose it. I'm going to bring it about. In verse number 23 in this passage, Isaiah 44, he invites us, especially the nation of Israel, to worship him because of his aloneness or his uniqueness being the only God. And he draws a specific point to himself that proves he is the only God. Okay? And I almost want to call it uh, like God is throwing down a gauntlet. Okay? Here's a little picture. This is, this is, this is a gauntlet. These gloves that these knights would wear. Okay? And they get mad at another knight and they throw down their gauntlet. And this was a great affront to the person that they threw it down to. And the only solution to the throwing down of that gauntlet was personal combat. Okay? So what is the gauntlet that God is throwing down? Look at verse number 7 and 8. Here's what God is saying. To, and who is, he throwing the, who is he throwing the gauntlet down to? To false gods, to others who would claim to be God, other idols and whatnot. Look at verse uh, 7 and 8. Seven and eight. Here's the gauntlet. 
Who is like me? He says, so he's throwing down the glove. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Okay, see the gauntlet? False idols, if you can, help me, predict the future and bring it about, then we might have a talk that you are possibly a god. But no other being can do that. And in verse number 8, as he's talking here through Isaiah, God says to the Jews, you are my witnesses. In other words, the Jews had long been witnesses to God predicting things and then bringing it about. All the way back to Moses. Pharaoh's going to say this, he's going to do this, then I'm going to do this. And very specific details all the way along. But right now, God is going to give them a very specific declaration about what he will do in the future. You're still in Isaiah 44. Look at verse 28. Isaiah 44, 28 says that God speaks of Cyrus. He is my shepherd. He will fulfill all my purposes. Look at 45, verse 13. Uh, not, not 45, verse 13. 45, verse, what is it? We're, well, verse 1, he says to the anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him. Now, verse 13. I have stirred him, he's talking about Cyrus, I have stirred him up in righteousness. I will make his ways level. He, Cyrus, will build my city and set my exiles free. This is 150 years before Cyrus is even born. Okay? God, in Jeremiah, we might say, oh, God said he's going to bring these people back. Okay, well, just history worked out. Right? That's what people might say. Well, history worked it out. And they, they found a good guy to let him go back. We went through all those Jeremiah passages. Remember I said God, God, God can promise something but he also predicts it. He says, I'm going to bring you back, and the way I'm going to do it is through this person. He will not be born for 150 years, but he's the guy that's going to do it. This, this nation of Persia, Cyrus was the founder of the Persian Empire, was, was not the most powerful nation in the world at that time. Babylon was. God has a plan, and he is going to bring it about. Cyrus was the founder of the Persian Empire, and he is the one who came into conflict with, with Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And October 29th is Cyrus the Great Day in Iran. They still celebrate this guy in Iran for what he did for Persia. October 29th supposedly was the day that he walked in and conquered Babylon, so they celebrate him. There's his tomb in a city in Iran. You can go visit it if you want. In fact, there's something called the Cyrus Cylinder, which is housed at a British museum, which was found in 1879 in Iraq, which has almost the same exact information that Ezra had about Cyrus being the king who released the exiles back to their nations. In Ezra chapter 1, can you go back there? I told you to put a finger there. I want you to see a couple of things that I... That I uh, highlighted for us in Isaiah. 
Hang with here. One, one more minute. Ezra chapter 1. So look at what he says here. He doesn't even talk about fulfilling the word of Isaiah. He could have said that. It says in verse 1 that the Lord stirred up the Spirit. That's exactly the phrase that was used in Isaiah 45, 13, where he says, I'm going to stir him up so that he releases my exiles and builds uh, my temple. We haven't even read all of Ezra yet. Look at verse 2. Cyrus the king of Persia says, The Lord the God of heaven has given me the kings of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And everybody can go and we're going to give offerings for that house. This is not the only group of people that Cyrus let go. Cyrus was a guy who tried to curry favor from people by appealing to their religious traditions. Persia had a lot of different exiles, and he let them all go back to build their temples and sacrifice to their gods. Here's what's actually written on that cylinder. I didn't read it because it's written in Persia. Translation. I returned them to their sacred cities, the sanctuaries which had been in ruins for a long time, the images that used to live therein and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I gathered all the former inhabitants and returned them to their place of dwelling. Now, I want you to understand this. Cyrus is only doing this because God is driving him to do it. Cyrus is fulfilling the word of God, doing exactly what God said he would do. Now, the sad part about Cyrus is when he let these people go, this is also written on the cylinder, he said, May all the gods whom I've resettled in their sacred cities pray daily to Bel and Nebo for a long life for me. And to Marduk, my lord, may they say, Cyrus the king worships you. Clearly, Cyrus was a polytheist. He believed in all these different gods. So when he sends, when he sends Zerubbabel and those guys back to Jerusalem, says, go build your temple. And the other people he sent back to, he's saying to all of them, have your gods pray to my God. Have your gods pray to Marduk and Bel and Nebo. Now what is so unique about this? I want you to think about something. I have a historical book that's written by Josephus. It's the history of the Jews. And in the book, Josephus said that Cyrus knew about the prophecy of Isaiah. Okay? So Cyrus had knew about or heard, and maybe even from Daniel, what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 44. About God, remember Isaiah 44? God said, I'm going to use Cyrus. It's possible Daniel came and said, Hey, Cyrus, I want to show you this scroll of Isaiah. Look, your name. You're going to do this. And it's possible that Cyrus did that because he, in fact, look at what he says in verse 2. He says, The God of heaven has chosen me to do this. Right? The Lord God of heaven has given me the kings, and he has charged me to build him a house. That's exactly what it says in Isaiah 45, 13. But what's, what point am I getting at? What is the rest of Isaiah 44 about? What is the whole context of Isaiah 44? It's that God is the only God. So Daniel showed him this scroll, and Cyrus was like, oh, my name. And he's so interested in that, 
he misses the point that there is only one God, and he keeps worshiping Bell and Marduk and Nemo, and it's ne- Nemo, that's a Disney fish. This is Nebo, the God. And so, most likely, Cyrus today is in hell, even though he had revelation from God that he failed to respond to. Isn't that? It's, it's so fascinating how close-minded and hardened and dark people can be. He misses the point. He saw the truth, but he missed the point. God does what he says. We're kind of overlapping here. Let's go to point two. God does what he wants. God does what he wants. I want to move on to this truth, which is about the sovereignty of God, that he controls all things and accomplishes his purposes. Look at verse 1 and verse 5 of Ezra. The focus is on the word stirred up. In verse 1, he stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to do that work. And in verse 5, he stirred up these different people. Uh, the, they rose up the head of the farm, uh, father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go. I think this is an interesting fact and should be comforting to us that God always in the Bible seems to use the most powerful people in the world to accomplish his will in these very important moments in history. The most powerful people in the world, God controls them. I go back all the way back to Pharaoh. Most powerful ruler in the world during the days of Moses would have been Pharaoh. What did God do to him? Didn't stir him up. Did what? Starts with an H. Hardened his heart. God, God was in control of that Pharaoh's heart. Hardened him so that he could release his people to head to the promised land. You think of Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful ruler. God just used him as a pawn in his story. Cyrus, the most powerful ruler at this time. You walk all the way to Rome, which would have been the most powerful nation in the world at the time of Christ. And he used those people. Proverbs 21 uh, let's see, I, I miss, I'm skipping some. Uh, Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Along with that, Isaiah 40, 23 and 24. Who brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them. This is God's opinion of powerful, rich world leaders. And they're gone. You know what people are worried about today? Oh, who's going to get elected? Oh, what's Trump going to say on Twitter? Oh, those Supreme Court justices, how dare they? Who holds the hearts of those nine justices? Who is the one who brings them to that position? Who is the one that can strike any of them down at any moment? Here we are fretting about it all and concerned and worried. Oh God, what are you going to do? God has it all under control. And to worry is to sin instead of trust him. He, he raises leaders up and he brings them down. With Pharaoh in the first exodus, he hardened his heart. If we could call this the second exodus, he stirred the king Cyrus. To stir means to arouse or to awaken or to agitate. And in the face of an impossible situation, which this might have seemed to the people of Judah. Maybe instead of complaining and worrying, we talked about the antidote at the start. Maybe we need to pray to God to stir up people that we care about. 
to stop arguing and debating and worrying and to ask him to stir up a family member who is wayward, to stir up a lost spouse or child, to stir up our neighbors, to stir up this church family to greater devotion and faithfulness, to stir up our world leaders, our judges, our senators, all these people, right on down to the register of deeds. Perhaps it's not strategy that we need, but it's a stirring, right? We don't need strategy or worry or concern, but God, will you stir these people? If he can stir and harden these powerful men who have all of the world's resources at them, these people, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Nero, they're like looking down on the world. Who can dare bother them? And it says God sits on a circle of heaven and the inhabitants thereof are like grasshoppers. No problem. So start praying that God would stir people up just as by his own sovereign will he stirs up Cyrus and the people in Ezra 1 to do his word. They would leave, begin rebuilding the temple, face opposition, give up for 20 years. But finally, under the encouragement of Zechariah and Haggai, they would continue. So when you think of something being impossible, think about this. Nothing can thwart the working of God. I love this verse in Ephesians 1, verse number 11. God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. What is, what is included in the sphere of all things? That's an easy question. What is included in that? All things. Your health, your kids, your spouse, your job, this church, the world, Trump, everything is in that circle. And God will work those things out however it is he wants. Psalm 115 says, God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And I want to show you a, a, and point out a, a real ironic truth that is funny, but it should give you some hope. How about this question? When God builds his places of worship, where he intends to glorify himself, how does he do it? Just think about that for a second. When God builds his places of worship, where he intends to glorify himself. Do you know how he does it? He always does it with the treasures of a conquered enemy. Think about this. He always does it with the treasures of a conquered enemy. How did Moses and the people of Israel build the tabernacle? They had taken everything with them out of Egypt. And they gave those offerings. Remember, where'd they get all that gold and silver and stuff? All that fabric and beaver pelts and all that stuff. They were in slavery for 400 years. They collect them. They go, oh, before we go on the Exodus, we've got to go dig up all our treasures. They took them from Egypt. Remember, the people were so anxious to get rid of them, they just kept giving them their stuff. Exodus chapter 12, 35, 36. It's also in Exodus chapter 11. When Solomon built the temple for, uh, for God's house, he used the conquests of David's armies. 1 Chronicles 26, 26, and 27. When God needs materials to build something he wants to build, he just takes it from people who are his enemies. And here we are with Zerubbabel building the temple. Look at Ezra 1, verse 4, uh, verse 4 on to verse number 7. Let every survivor, if they want to go, be assisted by the men of his place, by these people who have been keeping you in exile. They will give you silver, gold, goods, beasts, Verse number 6, And all who were with them aided them with vessels of silver, gold, goods, beasts, and with costly wares. And he says, you're going to go build the tabernacle, build the temple again, rebuild it. 
You're going to do it with the treasures of the conquered enemy. Now think about it. Where does God display his glory today? In the church. What does he use to build the church? He uses conquered enemies. He uses former rebels who used to shake their fists at guys and says, I'm going to take you and you with your spiritual gifts. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. I'm going to build my church with the treasures of the conquered enemy. Nothing is impossible for God. He can take those things and show his glory. He delights, in fact, to fulfill his plans in the most impossible situations. God does what he says. God does what he wants. Let's move to a finish. Thinking that way, God does what he wants and does, does what he says and does what he wants, that seems a little cold and arrogant and impersonal. Like, oh, these outcomes are all predetermined and God's going to do what he ever wants. It, it, sounds, it doesn't sound very comforting. So this is where we must, in our minds, do as Jeremiah did in Lamentations chapter 3 and call to mind the character of God. Now, I want you to turn finally, give me two more minutes, to Matthew chapter 6. Okay, Matthew chapter 6. I referenced this earlier in regards to worry, and I want to just finish with this. Okay, so yes, God is a promise-keeping God, and he's a sovereign God, but that seems very impersonal and cold until you read something like Matthew 6. Let's just read it and just about make one comment on it and quit. Look at verse number 25. We talked about anxiety and worry at the beginning. Can we have a trust and confidence in this promise-keeping sovereign God? So I tell you, this is 625, I tell you, don't be anxious about what you eat or drink or about your body, what you might put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Here's the, here's the, here's the encouragement. Are not you of more value than them? Does God care about you more than birds? Does God care about you more than flowers? Birds don't seem to be freaked out. Flowers don't seem to be worried. They, they... The point is this, that this sovereign promise-keeping God values you. 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. He's not a cold and impersonal God. He is one who keeps his word, but he is also a caring, compassionate God who considers you his priceless treasure because he was, he was valuing so highly that he was willing to put his own son to a gruesome, vicious death so he might rescue you and redeem you and restore you to a relationship with him. I mean, what more value is there than that? Romans 5 says... A good person might die for somebody. But God, while we were yet sinners, had Christ die for us. So do not let your heart be troubled, John 14.1. And remind yourself in your worry and trouble that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And let this trust and peace wash over you that God who did these things with Ezra is still doing this same thing today. All right, let's bow our heads to pray. Father, thank you so much for our time in your word. Thank you for the revelation of your sovereignty and your promise-keeping nature. You are a good and compassionate and loving God. All that you did with Ezra, you're the same God today. You've got our leaders, you've got our nation, you've got our families under control. And so we would pray that we would find confidence and peace in that and develop a trust in you that we seem to maybe be lacking. 
if there is somebody here today, God, who stands apart from Christ, no one here can argue them into the kingdom. I pray that your spirit would do this work in their heart and bring them to faith. Help them to find forgiveness. We thank you so much in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.